Welcome to Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End Chat. This is episode 99, if my memory serves me right, which is unlikely. How are things with you? Hope you're having a good week. In this episode, I was delighted to chat with Leslie Riddock. I'm sure you know Leslie from her numerous media appearances, books, magazines, podcasts, newspaper articles, and lately, films made about the Nordic nations. I won't tell a lie, I'm an enormous, I am an enormous fan. I've known Leslie for a long time and she's always been an absolute dynamo. Leslie is, of course, a tour de force, a political activist, pioneering publisher, writer, podcaster, independence and land reform campaigner, and last but not least, a role model for women in Scotland and far beyond. Leslie's also a role model for men. Uh, in Scotland and far beyond just because she does so damn much and she's so damn good at it. It would take me an hour to list all of Leslie's achievements and all of her her awards but of course we don't have an hour so instead I'll just point you to Leslie's website which is lesliriddock.com and you can read all about it yourself. The impetus for this particular podcast and chat relates to the film Leslie and Charlie Stewart have made called Denmark, The State of Happiness. And yes, you guessed it, it's a film about Denmark, which is one of the happiest states in the world. Leslie had mentioned to me that she's looking for an organisation or individual to set up screenings of the film in Glasgow. There are screenings already set up across Scotland, but she didn't have any, although I think she may have one now. She's looking for more. When we spoke, there was none in Glasgow. So in response, I said, well, come on to the podcast. I'd love to hear about the film and we can tell everybody that you're looking for folk to set up screenings. So if you're out there and you're thinking, yeah, I can set up a screening, I'd love to do that. Just get in touch with Leslie on lesliradock at gmail.com and you could be the person doing this. Anyway, shut up, Jim. You're wittering on now. I'll just stop and let's listen to... Me chatting with Leslie Rinnock. What I thought we'd do, if, if you don't mind, is split it into three loosely. Who knows where the hell we'll go, but loosely, three sort of things. One is a wee bit about yourself, to tell us why you end up doing such things and all these projects and your background, type of person you are. Uh, secondly, the actual making the, the decisions around the making of the film you know where it came yeah. from who was involved all the mechanics all the, the editing of all this sort of techie stuff uh-huh. and then lastly the film itself about you know within all of that there'll be plenty of opportunity to say anything you like because <laughs> because usually uh my approach is i just ask the question and then you talk Forever, and then I have no, oh, I know I have no problems whatsoever. <laughs> oh, please, honestly, please feel free to just jump in. I'm very used to that. <laughs> so, so we'll, we'll kid on that. Uh, there's been some button pressed, and that the podcast has started. Uh, so, thanks very much for coming on to Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End chat. Plenty of folk will be happy totally. to and, and I'm to so, hear. I'm so chuffed to speak to you again because I mean I can't even remember how we first did things together i think it might have been harkis yeah. and quines or uh, well i was thinking about it today actually i was trying to think because i was going to ask this first question about and i think <laughs> it was back in the 1990s and i remember it might have been something before that but the first thing i remember was something like world woman is that ring a bell 
Yeah, <clears throat> yes, that's uh, right. And I spoke to you about it. I think I did a website for you. I mean, this is, my memory is the worst no. in the world. And everyone who's uh, listening thinking, how can you not remember these things? Honestly, just wait, this is coming at you. But uh, <laughs> no, this was, uh, you could date it then because in 1995, I was right. <clears throat> assistant editor of The Scotsman um, when 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 I basically, there was an edition called The Scotswoman. I was the editor of it. So I remember that. Was, that. Yeah, yeah. That was that. International Women's Day, 1995. Yeah, yeah. Then there was like a huge interest around the world about this idea of women running a paper and guys being yeah. sent home. And the African countries were really keen to do a, an Africa woman. Um, that eventually became a charity I ran for seven years because most of the gals didn't actually have the skills necessary to run a paper on their own. Right, right. But in the interim, world women seemed to be, you know, why not? You just get lots of news from women around the world. Seems easy, but yeah. <laughs> it was quite difficult. Um, and thank, thank you, because that's what you did do. You stepped into the middle of it and created that website. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I remember you coming up to see me at the university, I think. I mean, I have the worst, really, I have the worst memory in the world. There's no doubt about it. But I think you and some other people, a group of other women who are part of the team, whose names I cannot remember, came up and we chatted, put the site together. And I think over the years, we've kind of bumped into each other, you know, now yeah. and again. The last time was when you walked into the Scotonomics conference, which I was helping out at. <laughs> last, was that last year? This year? Last, Earlier this oh, year? Well, whatever. Dundee, um, anyway. Yeah, that's right. So so the first bit, as I say, is to tell us a wee bit about yourself and how you end up being this person that goes in ways and makes films and has podcasts and sort of into the breach when it comes to Scottish independence and seems to be on the telly and doing lots of things, very kind of uh, empowered individual, driving other people as well. So how did, how did, what's your background that made you end up doing all of this stuff? No, I, I wish I knew, you know, because mm. my, my mum and dad were, I mean, the family are incredibly normal people, basically. Mm. Uh, I do remember one of the first things my dad used to say was, uh, well, he had no interest whatsoever in what other people did as a benchmark of anything. I remember doing a little survey of um, pocket money when I was seven with my brother in Belfast mm. to try to show him that we were being paid essentially about a quarter of what everybody else was getting <laughs> in the neighbourhood. And I'd coloured it in with like wee marker pens and all that kind of thing, you know. And he sort of took it and he was highly amused by it and sort of thought the colours were great and everything. And he said, why should we pay any attention to what other people do? And that just right. went boom into the hard drive. Uh, right. He was very, he was quite eccentric himself. So kind of uh, uh, that took a lot of limits away, sort of, because, right. you, you know, right. there's not, it's not. It's to me. There's there's no good answer to just say, well, nobody's done that already, or it's not an easy or normal thing to do. Well, you know, that was kind of felt like that was what the family was set up for. You're meant to kind of push the boundaries. He did pretty enormously. He nearly died of a heart attack, um, and then came back from it, became a marathon runner, and then died 21 years later for another heart attack. He was a. Uh, Massive runner in his younger days. He was pipped to the Olympics by a guy called Bannister so in the 1940s. So he was always sort of quite cheerfully not accepting any, any sort of boundaries, basically, right. at all. <clears throat> so I think I just inherited that. Can I rub it off on you? No idea. I think so. Yeah, it's funny because I suppose when you're young, uh, what your pals think about you 
and what your world thinks about you is probably pretty important. So if you can get rid of that particular thing, then that's going to be pretty uh, freeing. <laughs> well, the, the other thing, actually, I think is uh, is height. I mean, I'm right. six foot tall. This might seem sort of relevant. It was not irrelevant when we crossed the water from Belfast to Glasgow in 1973, where I was easily a foot taller than everybody. Right. Everybody, you know. Um, so kind of the age of 13 is a tough time to be a foot taller than all the boys, let's just say. Um, yeah. And so I was also taller than my little brother, you know, so you kind of get, and both my parents. So, I mean, there was a stage where I thought I was adopted, but, you know, there'd been tall people in the family, the rest of it. Right, right, and I right. think the thing is, you sort of go one way when you're, or other when you're tall. And I got into a sort of uh, slight, slightly, it's, you know, well, I nearly got hypnotised in a Robert Halpern show in the Citizens Theatre, which was embarrassing beyond words. Yeah, I, I remember him. On the stage, one of the six that he got every night who, you know, were sort of suggestible enough to be up on stage and the only thing that saved me from being one of the, the 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 people to come forward and start munching onions as if they were apples and all the other things that would ensue was that I was taller than everybody and it's rude to stand in front of smaller people so right, I got okay. to the back of the queue as I always do it's like you know you you just you get to the back of photographs you get to the back of everything and you feel responsible for people you know I felt responsible for my brother. Right. So I think that kind of probably comes in as well. So you're kind of feeling responsible for those people that are smaller than you. I know, it sounds because, ridiculous. Because they won't look, they won't look so good in the photographs. Well, you know, you just spend your life being told yeah. to get to the back of everything and yeah, yeah. it creates a sort of thing in your mind. But I think also, you know, every mm. family probably has this, that, uh, you know, I was the sort of tall, healthy you know, nothing was ever wrong with me, kind of one. Yeah. My brother had a few problems, hay fever, asthma, things. I just didn't have that. So I was always on the lookout for him. And uh, it just became a bit of a habit, I think. Yeah. Where did you come in in the uh, order of your kids, siblings? I mean, you don't get like this without being the eldest, basically. Yeah. 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 Well, of course. Yeah. What about you? <laughs> I'm the second oldest. All right. Okay. I have a big sister. Mm -hmm. uh, with similar, I suppose, uh, attributes to yourself. <laughs> a very in-charge person that tries to organise everything. Uh, she's a, a nurse and then a matron, in the, uh, which uh, suited her personality. Uh, she's now retired. But uh, mm -hmm. but the older sister, the oldest sister in the family, I think, is a particular uh, personality type, isn't it? Or so they say. I mean, who knows about that? Aye. My experience of it shows that it is the case. But, uh, so you, so you then did you become a journalist first? Is it, tell me, is that I, no, no, uh, no, no? I was I was really quite sort of involved in politics more, right? Okay, more, right. And uh, and had was very disdainful actually about journalism because it just right, looked okay. like a lot of sensationalist crap, basically. Yeah. Um, I would have to say that I went, ended up going to Oxford. I was the first at the school to go, and they were all very keen to get that on their thing. So I went just to basically have an interview in Oxford just to see what the place was like, and blow me actually got accepted. Right, that's remarkable. Um, yeah. It was remarkable uh, and massively stressful, but I kind of um, got involved very quickly in the politics around that was on the go there, which was feminism, 
um, anti-apartheid. Uh, yeah, yeah. 1970s, very active. Uh, yeah, you know. it was a frisky old time. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I was there from 1978 onwards. So Thatcher cruised into the middle of that in 79. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Falkland yeah. War and just, you know, basically yeah. the world falling to pieces as we yeah. knew it. Well, I was born um, in 1962, of course. So, you know, mm. was, uh, <laughs> I remember all of that stuff. Yes. But, you know. Uh, so, so that that kind of pretty much does shape you. And I was yeah. actually elected president of the student union in Oxford, so I was the first woman and and uh, lefty because it had been a Tory student union. Right. And by gum, those guys did not like losing their student union. So all of them, right. the Tories, and their dads were generally lawyers, like shop big shot lawyers. So I used to get sort of interdicts and injunctions and stuff if I'd made the smallest mistake. And of course, being a good lefty, I made loads of small mistakes because attention yeah, yeah. to detail is not our strength. <clears throat> uh, you're trying to change the world. You don't notice that you have to have precisely two weeks advertising for representatives to the hebdomadal council. And if you do it with uh, two weeks minus 12 hours, you get a you get a lawsuit. Right, okay. And that's that. they they yeah. rattled away at that. They told me that the project was basically <clears throat> basically to to make to give me and the deputy president, who was also a, a Scottish woman actually, anyway, to give both of us a nervous breakdown. That was the object. And they've they really very nearly succeeded. I went grey that year at the age yeah. of let me just think. Well that's a very common tactic, of course, of the uh you know, those in charge particularly on the right, uh, is to send lawyers' letters to anybody who want to get out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, I've seen it, certainly a lot of journalists tend to get sent lawyers' letters when they write things that somebody doesn't like, you know, so obviously it goes back a long way. Mm -hmm. It does, uh, and it was horrible. It really was horrible. I mean, that yeah. sounds like something that would shape you, no? It, it does, because, I mean, that, that actually pretty much put me off organized politics right uh, because it was it was ridiculous actually when you think yeah. about it i mean we were all ridiculous we were just students I and mean, what the heck you know everybody yeah. was fucked in some respects taking themselves far too seriously um and then and then there was the, the amount of wheeling dealing that was going on yeah. with political parties was just nauseating. So I think I saw too much too soon. And after that, I just thought, no, no, <clears throat> activism is the thing. I'll, I'll never be involved in a political party again. But that's the nature of that type of organisation. Who can we poke and do what, get them to well, do what was, we want to do? Well, it was worse than that. Yeah, I can uh, imagine, I mean, be yeah. Because, <clears throat> I mean, I was quite active in the sort of Troop Side movement for Northern Ireland. Right. Um and of course, you know, you've got the first ever woman, what's it, president of mm. Oxford being kind of, you know, troops out. That was and yeah. the Daily Mail and various places had IRA supporter, which was right, a okay. tough thing to have yeah. hung yeah, around yeah. your neck. Um, yeah. And and actually, yeah. you know, the Labour Students Organisation pretty much pushed that kind of thing to try and stop there being a motion passed at their conference that would basically add up to stopping the hunger strikers who were dying at that point every week. You know, Bobby Sands and all those guys. Yeah. Um, because they didn't want to be saddled with a policy like that dealing with Margaret Thatcher. You know, they felt that anything that was kind of legitimising the hunger strikers was going to be a millstone around their neck. Because yeah, they yeah, well, it's not, nothing new the there. Yeah, that's still uh, happening. So... That that was I saw that whole thing very close up um, distortions of what people had said, um, debates that were then very rigged, 
Um, and then yeah. actually apology leaflets handed out as you left the conference hall, which had been printed. So, you know, they'd been printed before the debate even began. So yeah, it yeah. was very just completely machine ran. But they got the result they wanted. You know, the, yeah. the, the lefties were routed, as it were. So, yeah, no more politics for me. No, I think that was a good idea. Uh, you know. No more party <laughs> politics for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I don't know what I think about it now. Uh, but I think you're right. I mean, as soon as you become a, a member of a, not so much a member of a party, I'm a member of the SNP. I think as soon as you become a politician, it's all about favours. It's all about uh, doing what you need to do within the policies of the party, particularly if you're high up in the party. You don't have the freedom to do the things. In some sense, that's you know that's great. You know, you got to have some kind of uh, combined front where we all say the same thing to some extent. But if it doesn't suit your personality, then yeah. that's the last thing you want to be is a politician. And I think that's it. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I quite admire the people who can stand in the middle of that yeah. and work their way through keeping some kind of, um, you know, moral compass, as they say, yeah. because so often uh, it attracts people for whom the ends always justify the means so that yeah. that can be a difficult world to work in. Uh, so it's just as you say, it's absolutely temperamental. So I I just couldn't couldn't deal with that. So that was the end of that for me. And at the end of the time in university, I'd set up, up uh, <clears throat> well, a feminist magazine, but also um, a nonviolent direct action group, which was a hoot. We mm -hmm. basically had a list of companies that if they turned up, Rio Tinto, Barclays, you know, yeah. this was the anti-apartheid days. If they turned up for interviews, which they all did in Oxford, we would try to occupy them. I mean, trying to occupy them. This is before mobile phones, people. We had walkie-talkie kits from WH Smith, you know, for kind of like two pounds, trying to locate the room and then trying to get yourself in. We had weekly exercises in non-violent direct action because you have to learn how to be assertive but not aggressive. Right. And, and so we did that for a year. You know, we met every week to keep our, as it were, technique up. And in hindsight, I think that probably also had quite an Im impact because I never like being aggressive in any sort of situation, even yeah. if I'm kind of quite provoked in interviews or something. And it might just it might just be the time that we spent trying to think about how to present yourself in a way that wasn't belittling anybody around you. Um, That's an enormous talent. There's not that many people have that talent, I have to say. <laughs> well, there's not that many people that spend a year once a week no, no, that's Physically right. Basically, going through the motions of that. Yeah, but to even think that that's something you can do—that in itself is a talent. To be able to think, yeah, well, what, the way we can approach this is not to be aggressive, and we have to find a way of, of saying things to people and be, you know, you not see, aggressive. Even, even the word "this is this is drifting a bit," but yeah. you know, there's a lot of people who are interested in neurolinguistic programming. Just the very words you use, who will not yeah. use the word "but." Right, okay. Because it completely undermines everything you've set up till then. Yeah. So yeah, that's there's interesting. lots of there's lots of ways that you can speak to people that are just less slappy around the facey sort of thing and less pointy. Um yeah. so we all had to learn kind of how to do that. And um it was quite an I mean, I still know quite a, a number of the guys and gals that were involved in that, actually. So that was that was completely different yeah. than all the sort of stuff in the student union. I could do with some of that training, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
I, I, I can't always control what I'm saying if I get too excited about something, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's not that, I mean, I don't think I'm in, a, in the least bit aggressive or in, definitely not intimidating in any way. But occasionally I, I can be very cheeky because I have a talent for cheek. But uh, <laughs> it's not the best talent, unfortunately, to have. But if I get a bit excited, I can I can say things that, you know, just depending on what's led up to it, I'll say something. Yeah. <laughs> it's not good. It's not a good. Yeah, well, ta- it's not well, a good talent. Well, you know, I do, but then the other things. I was just thinking about this today. Look at the people who've died recently: Henry Kissinger, Shane McGowan, and oh, yeah. uh, oh gosh, my brain's just dumped. Alistair Darling, and yeah. obviously, it's a shame about all of them. And who is on the front page of all the tabloids? Shane McGowan with his teeth. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. people loved him because he didn't he he didn't observe the niceties. You know, yeah, he, he didn't give a whatever. You know, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, so it's all very well this you know learning to kind of restrain or or maybe just try to sort of speak in ways that someone who's not on your side already would just be able to keep listening to you, basically. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. all I'm thinking. That's but right. there's times where you've got to be able to shift the gears. You know, if something is outrageous, you just need to be able to shift right up through the gears and say that's totally outrageous. Otherwise, you look like a Muppet. Yeah. But I suppose it's uh, having the instincts to know when that's appropriate and when it doesn't sort of backfire on you. Uh you know, and I guess the sort of training you're talking about is what it, what's taught you ultimately <laughs> to be aware of when you're acting in a particular way and when it's appropriate not to act like that. Yeah. Whereas yeah. I would just probably more likely just to get uh, the normal kind of angriness or whatever <laughs> and say things that I probably shouldn't. Well, I, I, a lot of people yeah. do say to me, I don't know how you yeah. manage to keep calm and stuff like that. Yeah. And I sort of think... Uh, well, I suppose it's just become a habit because obviously I went on to become a broadcaster, you know, yeah. a live broadcaster. Yeah. Like you can't get to a stage where you're going to, you know, you just you just have to be able to hold the fort, you know, and hold yeah, well, the centre. You're a professional talker. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to have a skill for that. I'm a, I'm a, I would be a professional shouter at the telly if I ever watched any of those programmes that I don't watch uh, because I know that I they would just upset me too much. All your question times and your news yeah. nights, all of that stuff. I do not watch any of them. I don't uh, know either. You know, because it would drive me absolutely bonkers. Uh-huh. Uh, total nutcases on there, talking absolute garbage. Uh, what would be the point of me watching that? I don't agree with anything that they would ever say, and it would uh-huh. irritate me. Yeah, so you know. <laughs> yeah, but we're, we're not we're not dissimilar, and actually. I have to go down to London to be on Trevor Phillips' Sky programme on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, on a one see like there's a thing because, I mean, it feels like, okay, they, I think they think they want an independent supporter and a Scot. I think what they'll find when it comes to the bit is that you can only fly the kilt a couple of times in a conversation before the bulk of the English audience basically right. gets pretty fed up with you. Right, okay. Um, so it's a, it's a very awkward thing to do. Uh, to know how to kind of play that one, basically, to be useful. Um, but it feels like somebody's got to do it. I mean, if Sky have decided, as they have, that we're essentially in an election campaign now. Right, OK. You know, there's probably less than a year now. Well, there is less than a year, basically, to yeah. the next election. So they're thinking about that. And it's great that somebody's beginning to think, oh, actually, we need to get the Scots on and the Welsh and, you know, 
uh, and yeah. work around the, the the houses a bit. But what that can often just mean is you just want to have somebody with a Scottish accent who follows exactly the same agenda uh, as the mm. Westminster agenda. And then you come back to you probably are expected to have watched um, Question Time and just no, no, yeah, you know. So well, it's funny you say that. I mean, I think election time is actually quite... I mean, when it comes to the point where they've got, they're forced to put other people on the programmes, because they're not forced to put other people on the programmes the rest of the time, but when you've got particular percentages that they're supposed to put, you know what I mean, like an SNP or, an, or a Labour Party, or a, that is actually a good thing, and that's probably the only time it's worth watching any of these things is when you know that they're forced to put somebody on there to say something because there's an election coming. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> most true. of the time it's four Tories talking to each other in a studio. Yeah, uh, three of those is... Tories that don't have a Tory on their badge, but they know they're all Tories, so they're all the same, same culture, same background, same whatever you know, same views. Right. Same... But that that is the sort of mission. Should you accept it, is to yeah. be the eternal one. Yeah, exactly. And it's not. It's not a great sort of experience because you f I feel very much, you know, sort of the responsibility of of making a good fist of it on behalf of, you know, 54% of Scots who want independence. Yeah. But you have yeah. to be able to sort of think about how to put that in without getting the hackles up of everybody around you. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's a it's, uh, increasingly I just think at this time some other people actually had a crack at this, which no doubt they will. I keep suggesting all the younger people that could do this now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they just need to, you know, they just need to, maybe I just need to stop saying yes, because that's what will make them actually jump a generation and get the new folk in. I think there's plenty of young people now that are kind of, you know, good speakers, say all the right things. I mean, I see them occasionally on social media. Uh, a lot of very smart young people. A, lo a lot of them are on Scotland Tonight. I mean, I've right. got a lot of time for Scotland Tonight as a programme right. because it invariably right. picks exactly what people are really talking about and is right. scrupulously fair about having a proper balance on it uh -huh. and has a lot of the young ones, all the younger women actually that are on uh, Nash the National, yeah. Shana Craven, very good. Um, all those people, very good. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's I'm a point where... Broadcasters, you know, they're like a blooming massive multi something liner ship that just takes a long time to turn around uh, because they, they'll have their contacts. And because they're not active in Scotland, they don't brush them down a lot. I mean, they'll be they'll be changing who they t talk to in mm -hmm. London a lot because they're in that media and they kind of read all their stuff. They've got a scooby what's going on up here, really. So if you want to get a commentator and you've got someone who's been a broadcaster and a woman, there's a couple of ticks happening already, you know. So they they just need to they yeah, they just need to jump jump ship. And once they've had somebody on once when it works, that'll be yeah. it. Well, if it's going to take you another five minutes to find somebody else, you know who's got five minutes. <laughs> it's not. It's not that. It's that they no. don't know that they'll be able to perform. All oh, right. I mean, okay. This is yeah, big yeah. old boys yeah. that you're on with. Yeah. You know. So, yeah. so uh, they need to have somebody who's not going to be overawed by. Uh, right. So somebody they've sort of they can count on to come onto Aye. the program. We used to call yeah. it when I was doing broadcasting. When we were talking about guests, we used to call them bankers. All oh, right. You okay. Know, because you could, if if you if you had someone who was a banker in the in the in the on a panel. You could, I always thought, you could afford to take a bit of a chance on somebody who was right, young right. or new or from a, right. that you hadn't tr tried before because you knew the banker would always be there to kind of pull the conversation round again. Yeah, yeah. So that's I think that's the way they look at it. They want bankers in the conversation. And, of course, yeah. you know, 
we're all going to die in the end, so they need to <laughs> they need to get their finger out and find more bankers. You know. Yeah, well, that's a world I don't know anything about. So that's kind of that's quite an interesting new thing for me to think about. Yeah, I suppose that you know, television is a high pressured area. We've got to make sure they're making a program. Yeah, and yeah. People are going to watch can, it. You can your brain yeah. can just completely stop. You know, yeah. I mean, if you haven't yeah. got and you haven't got used to thinking quickly and you know being yeah. ready to when when I do stuff. I find this more difficult increasingly going down to London. And I was wondering why I find this so stressful. When I think about going down to London, I I imagine William Wallace being hung, drawn and quartered at um, the Barbican, which just sort of doesn't help. No. I used to think this. I used to work in London quite a lot. Um, so I think I'm. I think the independence experience, let's just say, has changed things a wee bit, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, in things generally... You'd understand that if you go on something, you need to pre-think the difficult questions yeah. and pre-think what you're likely to be asked and then also have the confidence to sort of be a bit cheery and jolly and mildly provocative, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose it's one of the good things if you're going down in the train or something like that, that's when you can think about, you know, you've got time to prepare. <laughs> Whereas, yeah. you know, if you were going straight from your house to the studio, you, would, you wouldn't have a, a lot of time to, to think about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so anyway, well, I said we we're going to talk about you know your background. We can't again jump to the to where you are today. I mean, not that we want to spend a lot of the whole the whole uh, chat in the past. But if there's anything else that you think you want to mention before we start talking about your your uh, your film, uh, we, you know, the, something that's kind of significantly that brought you here, where who you are today. Well. Um, well, there is kind of quite a lot, but I suppose the thing is, I, I've sort of gone from being uh, kind of in the centre of the mainstream, I suppose, because I was mm -hmm. a BBC broadcaster. I won two Sony Speech Broadcasting Awards, yeah. bloody, bloody, blah. And then <laughs> um, it wasn't actually the independence referendum. I mean, I left the BBC in 2004, five, right. and it was, it was mostly... Um, it was a kind of cumulative thing from the Iraq war, to be honest. The BBC completely yeah. lost its mojo. It became, because it had a bust up with the Labour government over the dodgy dossier, and uh, it lost. And Greg Dyke, who was one of the best director generals the BBC ever had, walked the plank. And uh, Tory Labour placemen, but then followed by Tory placemen, came in. And basically, the BBC just sort of realised it should never be anywhere near the edge of taking on the government again. So if you were someone who was quite mm -hmm. prone to being around that edge, it became a pretty tricky place to be. And that was before we'd even got an SNP government in 2007. Uh, so, um, yeah, so that sort of suddenly, though, uh, in 20, what is it, just 2013, when the first debates began about the independence referendum, I was on something, I think it was any questions, and they asked, essentially, how are you going to vote? And I was told beforehand, you can sort of duck and weave on it, but David, David, was it David or Jonathan Dimbleby that was doing it, will probe until he gets an answer from you. So it's basically better if you just take a deep breath and go for it. You can put it your way rather than having it dragged out. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, mate. Because the second I come down on one side or the other, that is my broadcasting career over. Um, yeah, I, I, so it I have, was. Yeah, that's what yeah. happened. So basically. It's a strange world now where, uh, and I mean, I'm not too worried about it, actually, um, because, you know, the, the books I have are very often not available in bookshops as if there's something wrong with that. The films that I do are, 
you know, not very often in the mainstream of anything. And everything relies really on the goodwill of yesers, um, to mm-hmm. be really honest, to sort of get out. And actually, lots of people, I'm sure, will relate to this, that uh, it's almost like a separate little inner mini world um, mm-hmm. that circulates stuff on the ex- in the knowledge that the mainstream Won't will not. Touch it, yeah. That's right. Absolutely. That's kind of the way I feel. Not that I'm in any way uh, a part of any kind of media, but just in my own wee world, you know, on the internet or whatever, on Twitter. That's exactly how I feel. <laughs> I mean, I do things with Pat, of course, which are to do with uh, writing and mu- and I do, do my own music and all that kind of stuff. So I can totally relate to the idea that I'm not part of that other world. There's a, the world within politics. And and some of that's my own fault, simply because there's this whole this whole idea about well you shouldn't sit in your silo or your wee kind of group of people. You should, you'd hear other. I mean, I think the idea that I can't hear all the other noise is just ridiculous because that's what the rest of the world is telling me every single minute of the day. I know what's going on, <laughs> but I don't want to have it on Twitter all day as well. Yeah. I'm quite happy to have my own wee group of folk that mm. all more or less support independence, <laughs> and you know click like on your tweets because that makes me happier uh, and I'm at that point where I can't be bored with I, I mean I don't argue with anybody at all anymore I haven't argued with any trolls or any unionists or anything for quite a few years and I'm a much happier person for it so I don't feel I need to dip my toe in amongst any other uh, of these silos of folk here with our mad ideas you know yeah you know yes well I mean I I don't argue with people either mostly because it, because that is absolutely what people <laughs> I think are wanting to have happen is mm-hmm. I'm very conscious of um of where you let your energy go you know and your yeah. attention so that if you basically allow your attention and your energy to get sucked up by a bam they've won yeah yeah, that's exactly. That's exactly. You, know, yeah. you may still be looking for the most just and the completely perfect put down and everything. Not you've already yeah. blood pressures through the roof. They've taken an hour of your time. You're thinking about them all the time. So I'll just go in. Perhaps yeah. as a journalist, I'm a bit like that. If I can find a point, an actual, you know, without being even nippy to people who are unbelievably horrible to me, I would just go back in and say, uh, well, this is the way. This is where I took that information from. I see yours is actually 10 year, years out of date. You know, just saying. Um, yeah. So that's my, probably back to the uh, the old nonviolent direct action thing. But to me, it's just, a, here's a correction. If I can put that in, in a really neutral way, then I do. Otherwise, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I've got a few kind of things that I do see, which are just short. I usually say something like, thanks for your input. <laughs> yes, yeah, or that, you know. <laughs> Oh, or when people tell me what's it all, and I get quite a lot. What is it? Well, you're you're clearly on drugs. People say that to me on Twitter. I say, yeah, I got them from the NHS and they were free. Thanks. Very- <laughs> 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 That's why I support the yeah, SNP. Yeah, but I think the thing is with with that, it's just it's again this thing of feeling that if if this was me for me, I have now got to the stage where um, there is such incredible unpleasantness a lot of well all the time really. Um, yeah. I would hardly bother. But again, you know, it feels like, well, then they have one, I guess. But also that somebody's got to be out there, you know, just mm-hmm. batting mm-hmm. thing. Because people are sort of watching the way they, they want yeah. to see somebody not being cowed by this, basically. So yeah. essentially you have, I suppose, I've, I've learned to be that person. 
Yeah, yeah. No, you're in a unique position. I mean, uh, fun enough. I mean, I've been listening to your podcast as I was saying in, in my email. I I don't know how long it had been going before I started listening, but I've been listening for quite a long time. Twelve years. <laughs> twelve years, right? Well, I have been listening for twelve years. So so congratulations. That's a long time to have a podcast. That's amazing. Uh, I might have only been listening for the last couple of years, and it, in some sense, for me, anyways. It's not that I've not heard all the stuff because, you know, if you're plugged into Twitter and all that, you can't avoid most of it. But but I love the commentary on all the things and certainly there's things that I, that I haven't thought about. And the banter between you and I can't remember the other guy's, the guy's name is, you know, it's it's honed to perfection. <laughs> well, the, really. the thing is, it's Pat, Pat Joyce, and it's not honed. I mean, we don't do any prepara- joint preparation at all. We never even used to just uh, even used to agree subjects. We didn't do that. Right, either. right. Well, um, I mean, I say home to perfection. I don't mean it's organised. Yeah. I just, I just mean that it's comfortable. Yeah. And you both give each other space. Uh, although, obviously, you're doing most of the, the chat and it's your name on the podcast. But when you had the podcast a few weeks ago, when he was away because he wasn't well, there was there was a sense of where's my pal? <laughs> get yeah, on. Good. Well, I'm, I'm glad people feel like that because that I mean I still get this from people that used to listen to the programs I did on Radio Scotland. I remember when I left, somebody sent a really heartfelt letter saying you've wrecked my retirement because oh, right. they were obviously planning to listen. And I can sometimes go into a shop and yeah. just say, "Can I have a you know a copy of the National?" And it's just that sentence. Somebody will say. Yeah, but I think it's the accents a bit of a one. So people are very attuned to voices uh, and can yeah. imagine a lot from that and do slightly other things at the same time. And um, and and basically, you're modelling the kind of conversation people would like to be having in an increasingly isolated world. Yeah, particularly with COVID, smaller families, families that are far flung. You're not maybe having the sort of particularly the you know, the sort of political but chatty and sympathetic conversations uh, that you would like to have. So yeah. I think that's what it is a bit reassuring in that respect. But you're also fulfilling a role that uh, a national, you know, you're an independent uh, media, and I listen to quite a lot of podcasts and they're all independent, but you're fulfilling a role that we should have on our television. We should have a Scottish person or a programmer talking about these things every day like they were normal. I mean, I was particularly moved by the one about Gaza just the other day, about the the speeches. I think it was about the speeches in Hollywood, in fact. Yeah. Uh, which was, you know, I was practically greeting, as I say. Well, I, w- I w- definitely was. <laughs> by your description actually. of the... Because I didn't see it. I didn't see the actual speeches. I didn't see the... Uh, I didn't watch the Hollywood thing. But I got a real... Uh, sense of it uh, from from your chat and the kind of emotional impact of it. Now, I mean, it's the most. I mean, it's an incredibly terrible thing that's going on, uh, and it's quite right that people are are talking about it, but they're not talking about it on the television. So, where are you going to find out about these things? We're going to find out about it on pe- people people like yourself through people like yourself on podcasts, mm. talking about things that we should all be hearing. You know, so so it's a role. Well, well, I guess that actually, because I, I mean, I can I can hardly, in fact, I don't watch any news, to be really honest now, BBC News. Yeah. And a lot of people go, well, you know, kill surprise, you know, you've caught up with the rest of the world. I spent 25 years being employed by the BBC. Yeah. So to have had that drop out of my life is a big thing. 
Channel 4 News, can't speak highly enough of them as a yeah. news we, outfit, especially foreign news. Yeah, yeah. So I watch that a lot. But I yeah. see that there's a lot of people who basically can hardly watch it, what's going on in Gaza anymore. And what happens even on on their reports, which are, are unbelievable, is that you you have to watch basically the most incredible human stories being outlined. And then you get somebody on from the Israeli Defence Force saying it didn't happen. Yeah. And yeah. you watch this night after night after night, and it drives you mad. You know, yeah. so um, what you're not hearing is that, you know, the majority of people in this in Britain wanted a ceasefire, want a ceasefire. Um, there's huge support for positions which are just not being adopted by either mainstream party at Westminster yeah. and thus fall out of the mainstream when it comes to broadcasting. Yeah. So that you're like some lunatic PLO you know, one of Yasser Arafat's kind of long-lost cousins, if you simply point out that the majority of people in Britain back a ceasefire that neither Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer would contemplate. And yeah. weirdly, the positions, strangely enough, that the SNP have taken on Gaza immediately, and well done, Hamza Yusuf, because there wasn't a nanosecond's hesitation in him with the eloquence that he spoke with. Mm -hmm. But... Once again, in a weird kind of way, in the way that uh, many people felt that Nicola Sturgeon kind of spoke for the whole of Britain yeah. instead of the useless Boris Johnson, you've got almost uh, Hamza Youssef speaking for, for the majority when it comes to Gaza. And then actually, when it comes to even to Brexit, which of course is a much less you know, emotional subject, mm -hmm. but who's speaking for the majority? The majority of people in Britain want to rejoin. And you've got two parties who will not even mention it. Yeah, and you've got a media who won't mention it either, really. They, they don't want to reflect. But because those two parties aren't. Yeah. You see, I mean, they're yeah. driven very much by what... It's it's a horribly incestuous and sort of self-fulfilling vicious circle mm -hmm. because if, if, there, if there isn't going to be newspaper headlines pushing it, and there isn't because the murder-honed press is, you know, hugely Brexiteer, that is what the Labour Party is terrified of. So they, you know, have just let Brexit go. Yeah. And so you, you're, you're not going to find anybody practically, apart from the SNP, who just are seen as, well, those are the guys that want independence. Who's listening to them? So really, you get an extraordinary situation, and it's so dangerous democratically um, mm -hmm. because everybody will now make um, their predictions and their polling ideas and all sorts of predictions about the future based on parties which do not reflect public majority public opinion on two of the biggest issues about. Yeah. Well, I mean, for God's sake, you know, just yes. all of that stuff drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is why I, I avoid a lot of it. But, but funnily enough, Pat, who sends her regards, by the way, she said to me, sorry, <laughs> like watches, the, watches the news. And so it's on, it's on when I come in sometimes. So I kind of always avoid it. But uh, I don't know how Pat manages, manages it. But uh, she watches all these things. She watches the daily politics at lunchtime and all that kind of stuff. Respect. Drives me crazy. But uh, anyway, that's by the by. Anyway, I think we've kind of we've went towards just chatting about politics endlessly, so we should probably go off of that. Otherwise, we'll both uh, yes. know, end up... <laughs> Explode. End up mad. <laughs> and talk about your fabulous film, which I watched just in the morning, and then I listened to it again when I was walking to work and back and on my, on my phone. 
I mean, it's an incredibly high production value, professional, well-scripted, great film. I don't know how the hell you managed to do it. Uh, and to do something at that level, which is not kind of got the mainstream uh, cash and all that kind of stuff that goes with these things, I have no clue how you managed to get from standing still to the, to that film. So, so that's the first thing I suppose I want to talk about is how you managed to do that technically. Uh, I mean, I know you, you've got your, you know, the guy who was doing the filming who did a, an amazing job. I can't remember his name. I've got all the names Charlie. written down. Charlie, Charlie Stewart. Yeah. Uh, it's an amazing uh, film, really. Uh, just well, from first of all, say, it's about Denmark, in case anyone yeah. in the yeah, yeah. got it. But, Denmark, um, state of happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the, I mean, part of the answer I realise in hindsight is that um, I've been doing a, a kind of think tank policy group called Nordic Horizons for the past yeah. 13 years, um, again, on a voluntary basis. Mm -hmm. And um, in that time, there have been nearly 70 people come over as experts in the Nordic countries. And because um, there was initially no budget, again, to do, you know, to do much of this, yeah. Uh, a lot of them stayed in my flat when I lived in Edinburgh, um, right. and I used to get out of the flat and give it to them. So, uh, and I used to have to kind of turn up and cart them about and organise everything pretty much. So we got to know each other pretty well, and um, they're cheery, blooming people. I mean, mm -hmm. they're not hard to get to know. So there's some very firm friends in there, and I would have to say that nearly everybody interviewed in that film is somebody who was a Nordic Horizon speaker. Right. Okay. Yeah. So if you get and all of them said yes with the first request. Yeah, that was the funny. That was one of the questions I wrote down. Actually, was how did you get in touch with all of these people and get access to all of these situations? And you know, it seemed well, quite an enormous task. Just that, that alone, you that know. Rep but, that represents about six years' work. Right. On my right. Part. Yeah, you know, the, the, because you're basically leaning back on relationships that you formed at another time. So, for example, yeah. uh, it, when people see the film, there's a there's a minister, the minister for climate change, Dan Jorgensen. Yeah. Dan is a heck of a guy, actually. If anybody's interested, just for your own interest, Jim, mm -hmm. just Google Dan Jorgensen versus Fox News. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, right. So Dan was Fox News did one of their sort of sloppy, lazy kind yeah, of. Yeah. Uh, oh, in Denmark, they don't even ever leave university. Yeah, I remember and they that. They like yeah. making cupcakes, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he just went. He did a repost video um, that just went through all of these kind of um, allegations one by one. But again, textbook, textbook example of not getting angry. Yeah. You know, no, I remember that. Say, yeah, Trisha, it's like I, I like cupcakes and he holds one, you know, and he said, you know, but actually the Danes are way up on the productivity level. Here's the Danes. Here's the United States, you know. So it it was it was exactly pricelessly sort of calm, mm -hmm. but incredibly effective. The last time I saw him, before, you know, he so he came over and did a Nordic Horizons event. He'd had one million views of the film by then. Right, right. It's had 40 million views. So, um, you know, it was the most incredibly impactful um, riposte from the whole of the Scandic, kind of the whole of the Nordic model to all the sneering naysayers, basically saying, yeah, there is such a thing as society. If you kind of pay attention to it and just stop people treating people like widgets, weirdly, you get better outcomes. Yeah, yeah. That's just the size of it. So, Dan, there's no way 
um, somebody branching in from Scotland would get access to a minister the way that we did. But Dan had come over here. I think he may again have stayed in my flat. <laughs> we we got on incredibly well. He gave me a copy of a biography that he actually wrote of one of Denmark's most uh, you know leading politicians. And I said, Dan, I don't speak Danish. He said, yeah, but you speak Norwegian. You can make an effort, you know. And it's like, that's the sort of stuff people, they remember. Yeah. People who've come to Scotland remember Scotland. They're really fond of Scotland. Right. Yeah, so, I got that impression, mate. I think it was somebody mentioned that. No, it was, yeah, that was well, him, actually. It was him, yeah. He was talking about Scotland, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, the... the so, for example, there's this, the film begins with the city architect of uh, of Copenhagen, Tina mm -hmm. Sabe, uh, swimming with me, actually, yeah. in Copenhagen docks. Now, there's not many interviewees, when you're doing it from a standing start, that you're going to phone up and say, hi, Tina, you know, first of all, would you like to do an interview about this? And knowing exactly what it was you want to get from her. Yeah, because, yeah. You know, we spent so much time together. I'd kind of got the incredible renovation that Copenhagen went through from her. But also being able to say to her, because she said at the end of all of this, the big achievement for the Copenhageners was to clean the whole harbour area as a big swimming pool. And she said, yeah, I have a flat that's actually right beside the docks and I could just open the window and jump, sort of basically dive out of it like a mermaid. Yeah, now, that picture stayed in my <laughs> mind for 10 years yeah, yeah. until we're doing this film. And I said, boy, Tina, have you still got that flat? Because, you know, it would be amazing to films are show, don't tell. So you, you could stand on the banks of the river and look at people swimming or you could get in. So Tina actually was totally game. For, yeah, OK, fine. I'll bring my swimming suit, you know, and bang him. We went, you yeah, know? yeah. So that's but that's that's what it is. I think you you wouldn't. If you hadn't spent as much time as as I have done, actually, with all these guys, uh, you wouldn't have the goodwill and you mm -hmm. wouldn't have the quick uptake and the trust, I guess, as yeah. well comes yeah, back yeah. to it, you know. No, it was clear. I mean, this is a funny thing. I mean, clearly the the uh, the culture, the ethos, the kind of community spirit, the everybody working together stuff, that all comes across, you know, enormously. And the idea that people are a bit more relaxed and, you know, well, that's why it says state of happiness, you know, happiest, happiness index, are we up there? Are they the happiest? I don't know, is it are they it's second it happiest, was it? It just revolves amongst the Nordics, basically. Yeah, you know, yeah, and that all comes across. Years. And they all do some come across as your pal, as they say. <laughs> and that's probably because they all were your pal. You know, uh, it's, it's a particularly positive film. But I want to go back a bit further to where the idea came from for that particular film and then you know the whole struggle of getting funding and all the stuff the actual structure that you need to put together to make a film i mean where did that idea come from originally the well it was it was sort of it, well there there are there are other films made already um about the nordic countries right, which so i made just... <clears throat> with al mcmaster they're all on my website if anyone wants right. to check them out so norway iceland the pharaohs yeah. Um, and then I made a film with Charlie about Estonia, <laughs> which was kind of, I'm laughing now, but uh, we, yeah. we started filming about three weeks before lockdown. And then we had to complete filming using a young cameraman that we'd met when we were in Estonia, Joe Dunnigan, um, who did remote filming for us. It was a weird kind of way to, to operate. Right. Using Skype to interview the interviewees, Skype is an Estonian creation, created oh, right. by three 19-year-olds. I didn't Estonia. know that. Um, 
so anyway, that film became quite an epic. It took us about a year to finish it because we, you know, we just hit hit the closed period of lockdown. <clears throat> but but that film has actually been viewed almost half a million times online, right. which is astonishing. Yeah. So, you know, the question, once you've started to work your way through the Nordics, the only question is, which one would you do next? Yeah, who's next? Yeah, um, yeah. And so, I mean... You know, it basically was either Denmark or Finland. Um, I think a lot of people feel Denmark's closer. It's got a lot more in common with us. And it's, you know, it is now the energy powerhouse, the green transition is all that mm -hmm. stuff. So uh, so really, we just thought, well, you know, we should we should try and do Denmark. Um, I mentioned this to the Scottish Independence Foundation. Now, I've got to say, without these guys, nothing would happen. These, these are a couple, you know, a weak group of mostly guys, I think, with cash. Who've yeah. decided to put it up? Yes, and, you know, and your, you know, your uh, on the end, who, the, the names yeah. and things, yeah. Uh, but they also they also gave me a small amount of money to be able to take a couple of, I think, a four a month off to write Thrive, because right. I couldn't write two columns in that book at the same time. Yeah. Um. So they they've been, and I mean, I can't remember the number of things that they've contributed just. You know, just enough money to give you breathing space to be able to do something. So they're brilliant. And the co-founder in this was Dr. Simon Forrest, who um, has a tidal energy company. But this right. is just him personally. So between the two of them, actually, I was speaking to Simon anyway. And he said, if the Scottish Independence Foundation put up half the cash, I'll put up half the cash. So it was funded in about an hour. Right, right. And but again, I mean, that's I... because of knowing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you just... Of, you know, you're you're as good as the last thing you've done, I think. Yeah. And it would have to be said, when I spoke to someone later from Scottish Screen, they were absolutely, am I mean, amazed to aghast at the smallness of the budget. Uh, you know, because if we hadn't, if we needed to have more research done, because essentially I suppose I'd already done the research for years, you know, so... Um, if we'd needed more more of that, we'd have been absolutely stuck. And now, now the only problem is, it's fine to get a film, <clears throat> but the object of the exercise is slightly to get people watching it at night. Yeah. It can go online; it can be watched there. But people get a lot more from watching something collectively, you know, in, in, a, yeah, yeah. in that old-fashioned thing called a cinema. Absolutely. Or, you know, so I've been having to because there is no budget for that. I've been having to sort of just try and do that so mm -hmm. i've got about 12 or 14 places sorted across scotland so far uh with mm -hmm. viewings in january and february and i'll be there to do q and a's and that the list of them will come out soon when we have finally got a place in glasgow yeah because that's proving to be the difficulty and i'm just running out of time and sort of energy and yeah. stuff to do i was that. thinking when you mentioned that i mean the glasgow film festival Maybe about I don't know missed five the or six years by ago. Four days. Eh? We missed the deadline by four days. All oh, right, okay, <laughs> right, okay. That Must wasn't be. what I was going to say, mind you. What, what I was going to say was that about four or five years or six or seven years ago, when it was, I don't know. They they did the festival in community places rather than actual film theaters. I don't know if you remember that uh, when we was organising it. So we went to quite a few of them. Uh, which were like in a local hall or something like that. So maybe if you can get it into a, an actual film theatre, maybe I've there's tried possibilities. Seven halls, right? Honestly, okay. Jim, I'm not. I don't give up easily. Yeah, I've yeah. Just got you know, and there are a couple of possibilities. But the other yeah. thing is, I can't micromanage twelve screenings or twenty screenings actually yeah. across Scotland. So I actually need some yes groups to come out of the woodwork to just take yeah. it on 
I've got a couple of possibilities. One's the CCA, one's a brilliant church called the Adelaide yeah. Church, which was used in a recent um, festival for survival that Scottish CND mm -hmm. ran, and it's got a brilliant kit in there. So mm -hmm. those are the possibilities. I've gone through Glasgow University, was quite hopeful that would work out, didn't. Yeah. You can't... You... <sighs> Have you already been on the Scottish so Indie podcast? Um, because but 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 the thing is, it doesn't help me to have a lot of people yeah, coming of with a lot of yeah. goodwill saying, "Oh, I'll try yeah. and do something." It needs people who are used yeah. to organising stuff who can look at this, size it quickly, and say, yeah. "We can do that. We can find three or four hundred quid to to you yeah. know underwrite it. We can do the Eventbrite link. We can you know take yeah. this on." And every other place in Scotland has managed to do that. Yeah. So come on, Glasgow. I mean, I have contacted quite a number of the big yes groups, but mm -hmm. so I hope something will come out of the woodwork. But it's just yeah. the difficulty, I think, with Glasgow is it is sort of so big um, that it's mm -hmm. like a series of places rather than one place. And of course, you can find a community hall somewhere. Then yeah. you've got to find, you've got to have help to publicize it, get bumps yeah. on seats, all of that. So I need people to take this on, not yeah. not come help by yeah. telling me who else I yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm, 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 I've got the message. You know that one. Don't worry. Any, any heavy lifters <laughs> out there in the Yes community in Glasgow, please get in touch. You can find me very easily on Twitter. And my email is leslieriddick at gmail.com. Thanks, Leslie. I think we'll leave it at that. I forgot to mention at the start that we chatted for so long that I decided to split this chat into two episodes. So this is the first episode and I'll put together the second one as soon as I can. So thanks again, Leslie, and I hope if there's anybody out there listening uh, and you fancy setting up a screening in Glasgow, give Leslie a shout. Okay, I'll leave it at that and I'll catch you the next time. Bye for now.